being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong now can i just say the portions of the book that dealt with mcveigh's time in the first gulf war were some of the most harrowing stuff i've ever read and like my my listeners know i read a lot of harrowing things and I genuinely consider this to be like amazing war writing. And I mean, so as a podcaster right, who talks about once a week about just like the most relentlessly horrifying things, I wouldn't call myself jaded, right? But like I am more and more, I find myself less and less frequently like viscerally disturbed by things I read. But specifically, a few of the events that you write about in this first Gulf War are some of the darkest things I've ever read. And so we'll talk about it, but like some of what you write about, I had, I had never heard of. And like, I consider myself some quite familiar with like the various like Noam Chomsky style, like misdeeds of the U S empire. But like, I had not heard about some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, me either before this. Um, and, and and to me, it's almost, gosh, I, I don't know. It's the part of the book that I'm most, I, I don't want to say proud of it, but it's like, um, it disturbs me mm-hmm. still. Like, it's intense. And though there was a narrative it was a very long one that McVeigh had um, given his attorneys and it talked about every single day he was in the Gulf and what happened to him and then like I took that and then I overlaid the accounts of his cohorts that I had on top of that and then I like had to track what was going on during the Gulf War where he was where the unit was and like what what was happening and this is how like the, some of these really insane atrocious things um come out and uh and he is in the thick of them um he is at his unit he he they're put in something called the seven corps first armored division and they led they led the <laughs> the forward assaults um and i want to say this like while at first mcveigh's company were like just regular infantry at some point just prior to the gulf war they were changed into a bradley unit and these are (laughs) bradley Mm. fighting vehicles and no one was happy about this but like (laughs) mcveigh's job and his cohort's job in the gulf war was was like this forward their Bradleys were leading the whole war. They were like right in the yeah. front. And the Bradleys, okay. I I when you talk about weird things that happen to McVeigh, one of them is that he's put in a Bradley. <laughs> and the Bradleys end up being like the most widely criticized vehicle in the US military ever. Um <laughs> they in my in my footnotes, or I'm sorry, and notes. There's like even more history as to some of the like financial shenanigans of, that going on with the Bradley. And I think there's even a movie, I believe with George Clooney, I 
forgetting what it's called now, but like it, it, it's kind of a funny movie. They make it a comedy, but it's about how fucked up and stupid these like what happened with these Bradleys. But they were basically at the time of the Gulf War untested in in any kind of realistic scenario or combat situation. Some of their defects defects include susceptibility to catastrophic chemical fires when hit with anti-armor weapons. Um, the armor on the Bradleys shattered, burned, exploded. Um, <laughs> the fuel tanks and ammunition tanks, or they exploded easily when hit. They were supposed to be able to like go into water, but they sunk really easily. Um, they were supposed to be very agile, somehow moving vehicles. Um, they jammed abruptly and sometimes out of nowhere slowed to half their speed. Um, they became stuck or dug in a lot. Um, they were supposed to be very durable. <laughs> Doors fell off of them. Um, so leaving the people inside exposed to fire or to, to like enemy fire. Um, in fact, at one point in February, on February 1st, McVeigh writes a letter home and he, and he's talking about how the army is conducting inspections of like almost 2000 Bradleys because as it turns out, uh, the, the defects were just, were just so bad that they were jamming completely. Um, so, so I'll, that's all of this is to say he's already starting off in a bad way. Like he's the gunner on this. He's a gunner on a Bradley. And like he's in a vehicle like of death, basically. Yeah, and then you also write about how strategically the men realized that they because like people didn't know that the Iraqi army was going to just like give up. Just give up, basically. So, like, if they would have fought even slightly more, then McVeigh and his unit would have basically been dead, right? I mean, yeah. they realized that they would have been on the chopping block, basically. Yeah. Yeah. If And, and he was terrified. And there's only... He never talks about being scared, you know, not as a kid, not, not after he leaves the army, but his fear is salient he is petrified mm. and he it, it it shakes him and and the other guys with him but like he, at one point you know when he goes home he's he actually cries uh talking about like how scared he was um he's terrified and he's writing home saying i don't think i'm coming out alive and and they were told most of you aren't they were told most of you aren't coming out alive. He's terrified. Now, if you like pair that with he has good reason to be because he's on like a shit vehicle that is gonna explode, sink, blow up, you know, just not make it. This is very, very scary for him. I mean, and I'm not trying to be like, oh, poor Tim McVeigh. I'm just saying, like, yeah. this is this is how the war starts for him. It's he's terrified and he has really has reason to be. Um, and as it turns out, though, it wasn't <laughs> Iraqis that like were responsible for most of the deaths. It was like the 
American military themselves, it was quote unquote friendly fire. And he's directly like in positions to witness this happening. And he also knows this being lied about. Um, you know, one of his biggest fears wasn't the Iraqis, it was friendly fire because that was happening fairly often. And they were told not to talk yeah. about it. No, it's interesting because, like, a while back I did an episode on J.D. Salinger. Yeah. <laughs> and he was, uh, I think, I'm trying to recall, uh, Counterintelligence Corps. And he was involved in covering up instances of friendly fire. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I mean, like, he was ordered to, right? I mean, that was... it's not like it was his choice. No, but that was his, what he, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, people might know friendly fire is really common, probably in every conflict. But like, that was like probably one of the main sources of like casualties in the first Gulf War, because like, oh, it was the Iraqis weren't fighting back. Basically, I don't know where it is. Like, I was looking at the statistic. Like, wow, I'm so prepared, and yet so unprepared. Um. I mean, no one's going to care if it's, you know, you don't have the exact number, but. The exact numbers. No, but they were, res friendly fire was responsible, I believe, for more deaths than the Iraqis were. Yeah. Yeah. So you, people should look into that or read the book or something, but like, it's pretty harrowing and it's not something you're taught, you know, you're not taught that when you're taught history like and then there was this war and we killed ourselves yeah when people say or you know famously the quote is war is hell and it's like that wasn't metaphorical <laughs> like it's very literally just the worst shit yeah yeah um and it, it gets like we're gonna talk about some hell here like so so you know He's in the Gulf War. They're leading the assault. He's talking about how he would be in this 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 Bradley. He'd be shaking from fear. Um, and the cohort unit, remember, was supposed to like prevent psychological <laughs> breakdown um, mm -hmm. in battle. But like, it doesn't matter if your Bradley sucks. And um, at one point, he's actually taken out of the Bradley he had been training in for just this type of situation and put in a different Bradley. And like, you know, I don't know why. But so there's an issue here of Iraqi POWs, like the rules of engagement in a war dictate that enemy troops are supposed to. Okay, first of all, I'm not naive, like, war doesn't happen, it's not like a rule book, right? But the rules of engagement, mm -hmm. if if someone's trying to surrender, you let them surrender, and you give them a chance to surrender, if possible, before killing them. Um, and a lot, there were so many Iraqis surrendering, and, and McVeigh and his company, they, they keep encountering these, these Iraqis that are surrendering, um, and they were, you know, they had open sores, they were covered in lice, they were starving, they were demoralized, like, it would be scores, just waves of <laughs> surrendering Iraqis. Um, 
And so at some at a certain point, like they some people say like, well, we couldn't handle all of the we couldn't handle all of these POWs. Um one story that would become a an issue in his in the trial or that was written about a lot in the news before the trial was like that during the Gulf War McVeigh Bradley came upon some Iraqis in a trench and he ends up shooting two of them as they were trying to surrender. They're they're breaching the front lines and he makes this like shot and he's actually given a medal for this because it was such a hard shot to make. But um, McVeigh tells his attorneys how they're approaching. He gets to an entrenched um, Iraqi machine gun bunker. He fires from 1,600 meters away. And with one shot, he sees this cloud of red emanating. And uh, he so he shoots a guy and everyone in the trench surrenders. Um, other people in those that were there like in vehicles next to him says no they didn't just all surrender they tried to surrender and uh the whole company just shot them all like they just kept shooting and they were ordered to just keep shooting so that's 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 the first like encounter with having to fire at a human being and there's conflicting stories about what happened one of which is that they just whole scale shot all these surrendering Iraqis. Um, there was a an art. There was an investigation into this um, by the Criminal Intelligence Division of the Army. Um, they were investigating war crimes briefly. So this isn't just a story. Like there was enough that this was investigated. Um, McVeigh called it a high tech turkey shoot. Hmm. Um, I've never shot at any living thing, or much less turkeys. But you know, he he called it a high tech turkey shoot. So let's just continue. When McVeigh was sentenced after his trial, he they asked if he had anything to say for himself before his sentencing, and he quoted. He said. I wish to use the words of Justice Brandeis dissenting in Olmstead, um, which is actually a federal wiretap case. And he wrote, our government is the potent, the omnipotent teacher for good or ill. It teaches people, it teaches the whole people by its example. With that said, on February 25th, 1991, McVeigh's division is crossing into Southern Iraq. <laughs> in what Schwarzkopf would call a classic breaching maneuver that would be studied for years to come. McVeigh's Bradley <laughs> is in the lead. They're pulling up parallel to Iraqi trenches along the Iraqi-Saudi border. Um, for over 100 hours, they engage the Iraqi army. That's February 25th. Um, on the 24th and 25th, as this is happening, a, a scene occurred that Ramsey Clark would describe as the most horrifying story of all. 
first of all, you've got howitzers like raining hell on on everything and everyone um, as the Bradleys and Abram tanks are are pulling up. So in something that came to be known as the bulldozer assaults, um, Abrams tanks outfitted with plows and scrapers um, broached the trenches. They were sh started shoveling mounds and mounds of sand on the Iraqis in the trenches, burying Iraqis alive. Um, and as this is happening, Bradley vehicles are like coming up after them and firing on anyone that isn't buried or already killed. At the same time, armored combat earth movers, aces, are coming up behind them, cleaning up, cleaning up the scene, like then like putting more sand basically over them, burying them more, bear, you know, cleaning it up. Um, and journalists were not allowed for the next 36 hours, they, they, they were not allowed to see this or view it. Um, the record shows that McVeigh's company, his Bradley among them, his specific Bradley spearheaded this bulldozer assault. Um, some quotes, including from McVeigh's commander says, what you saw was a bunch of buried trenches with people's arms and legs sticking out of them. Um, Bradley's were rolling over people. People were suffocating to death. There were huge piles of corpses um, that provided a smooth foundation um, for crossing over further. Um, McVeigh tells his attorneys the, the attitude was, if it's in front of us, it dies. And because of that, and because of the sounds made by the tanks and Bradley's rolling over these humans, these Iraqi humans, um, they, they, the other soldiers were calling them crunchies, um, which is just, just this grotesque detail. Um, mm -hmm. Some, there wasn't many, but there were some news reports and that that like and there were also satellite photos of this happening um and one of the later you know there wasn't much said about it but when they were asked about it officials said look we had so many prisoners of war we just couldn't take anymore um other soldiers said if you disobeyed if you were to say like i'm not burying people in the sand alive you would have been shot for insubordination on the battlefield. That's what like one soldier said. I don't know. I don't, I don't even know if I can do this justice unless I'm doing it in writing because it's, it's just so grotesque. Um, the numbers like later, you know, they're trying to figure out how many people were buried in the sand. Um, and the numbers, even from the American government are just so wildly, different so you've got answers that range from 400 to 20,000 that is just the low end is like so many people i can't even imagine right yeah that's the best case scenario yeah but um i mean and it's weird to me and one of the things i like became aware of 
because of this writing was like <laughs> the problem with numbers the problem mm. with statistics that are you know and of course I wasn't stupid before like I you know but just to see how widely they vary even from the official sources themselves like uh, Schwarzkopf at one point says it's 75,000 um mm. so 75,000 like buried yeah holy shit it, Dick Cheney says at one point it's 457 people. So there you go. You got those two guys. Yeah, and that's such a specific number that just smacks right, the seven professional line. Yeah. Oh, it's 450. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and how does he know anyways? Like, but mm -hmm. I mean, there are the satellite photos. So so the but either way, it happened. Like this happened. And whether it was like five Iraqis or 5,000 or 50,000 Iraqis. People were buried alive and they were trying to surrender and like they were driving over people. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to like really comment upon it. It's just like <laughs> that, you know, this is one of the parts of the book where I was just like, I can't even believe this. I had never heard anything like that. No. Um, it that was, I just, I can remember the time period where I can remember specifically like days of sitting, s sitting down and, and like trying to like put, synthesize like every single report I could about this plus McVeigh's statements, plus the cohort statements and just being like, oh my, oh my God, this is insane. Um, yeah. And to me, it's almost like, I mean, I, you know, anyone can make what they will of the book. For me, it, it's almost a climax mm -hmm. because, like, from here, you know, it doesn't get better, but that's like just the peak of what the fuck. Yeah. Like, of course, I would never really say the words like I sympathize with Timothy McVeigh, but like, I would say he's what between this and some stuff in his childhood, he's at his most sympathetic. Yeah. Except on the flip side, you know, when he's at war, he's you know, he's involved in it too. Exactly. So it's like such a complicated situation there. Right. There, there's no justification for this. And even if like he quote unquote had no choice, he did it. And right. Yeah. But he 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 definitely <laughs> to his credit i guess you know like it disturbed him greatly he like when he went home he had a brief brief like um visit home right after the gulf and he was a mess and and he just yeah he he broke you know he's breaking down being like i can't believe i had to do these things or, like the things i saw were just so horrible
and and the bulldozer assault that's one thing and then like right after that <laughs> yeah well it's interesting right because like nobody really knows about the bulldozer assault except like people who've read the, this book and maybe a tiny fraction of people who might have seen the news article i feel like most people or even then i'm not a lot of people but like many more people have heard of the thing we're about to talk about right yeah yeah because this is yeah this is this is more well known but at the same time unless you're sitting there like trying to learn about the gulf war you may not you may not know about it but this this has been more widely reported um so there's they're heading to Safwan, Iraq. And at that point, there's something called the Battle of Norfolk. And it's called the most costly and thus most important battle of the war. And it was McVeigh's division that suffered the most extensive casualties. And that's 40 wounded and seven dead, which still, I'm sorry, doesn't compare to like... Mm-hmm hundreds thousands of people in the sand but anyways um at first what i'm about to tell you like um the, the mcveigh's division the pentagon told reporters and the families that it was at the iraqis that had killed them and then just like months later they had to admit that actually all of those deaths were friendly fire um all of them yeah, Good every Lord. single one um so that's norfolk uh, so like you know that's going on i'm just trying to put myself like in the moment with McVeigh's company here like oh shit I, like we just got you know a bunch of our guys just died that was horrible i'm sure for them and they're continuing along and they get to something called highway eight um a road that eventually connects up to something called Highway 80 or Basra Highway, which is a six-lane highway that connects to Kuwait deep inside of Iraq. Um, and by this point in the war, this is February 25 and 26, by this point, um, the Iraqi army is in full retreat uh, on like thousands and thousands, untold thousands of Iraqi soldiers and citizens in tanks, cars, school buses, ambulances, and on foot are are trying to head north and just get just get the just get out. Um and those retreating Iraqis that are like trying to just um, evacuate this highway are met with wave after wave of extensive aerial bombardment. And those who weren't killed in that the aerial bombardment were then like it was cleaned up like they then they were shot. Um one night, one survivor says there were hundreds of cars destroyed, school, soldiers screaming, bombs fell, um, like lightning, charred cars, bodies on the side of the road, soldiers sprawled on the ground. Um, people were being hit by cluster bombs as they tried to um, exit their vehicles. Reporters on the ground describe seeing over 60 miles of burning oil well, debris, wreckage, abandoned abandoned military and civilian vehicles and sites of wild dogs feasting on mutilated corpses. And I might add many of which were civilian corpses. 
Um, and that I'm not talking about 10 people. That's hundreds to thousands. Um, they're everywhere all around these vehicles, mangled and bloated bodies, uh, burn beyond belief. So, so like the body count on that, <laughs> the official body count given by the American government was two to 300. And then also that can get up to several thousand depending on what reports you're looking at. Um, the bodies um, from that round of aerial assaults on Basra Highway disappeared because American troops were ordered to bury them. Then they were ordered to dig them up to count them, I guess, or I don't know why, but then they were ordered to dig them up. And then they were ordered to rebury these corpses. And that's the corpses that dogs you know, hadn't already like took taken care of. Um, they, they worked for days burying these bodies in shallow graves. Iraqis being dumped in a group of graves by means of uh, that earth loader, that front loader, the same vehicles involved in the bulldozer assaults, like would just come through and just bury them. Um, still the aerial footage released by the Pentagon, what it showed was vehicles. It did not show any bodies. So they, they cleaned that up. Um, and that that's not, you know, you don't do that accidentally. But this was this becomes known as the highway of death. And and McVeigh was there and he saw this and he says, like, I saw thousands of uh, surrendering Iraqis just being slaughtered. Um, and it was his his captain says they wandered for miles through hundreds of blackened bodies. Was there I'm trying to recall, didn't wasn't there a passage about like the color of the sky changed? Yeah. That is, I'm not seeing that in my notes, but there's, um, it became like, there would be thick clouds where the, mm -hmm. the it's like revelation. It was like the, it becomes yeah. a sackcloth. It's just black. The sky is like black. Just very biblical levels of absolute destruction. Yeah. And just, unre I mean, I can't, I can write about it. I can read about it. I can like try to process it. I, un I understand. I can never understand, um, but what I can imagine or understand is just horrific. Um, and mm -hmm. McVeigh's unit were one of the people that were like told to bury him, dig him up, bury him. So, so what does that do to a person? You know, that's a big question we're not going to be able to answer right now. But what does that do to a person? Yeah, and then like on the flip side too it's like well an entire army went through similar experiences and then like why is mcveigh the outlier sure you know like it's not right this isn't uh, this isn't he did Oklahoma city bombing because of of the bulldozer assault or buzzer highway but yeah and I mean, what did it do to the coat to the to the U.S. soldiers? What did it do to the Iraqis? Um, yes, you know that's important because you know because it is. But uh, so that happens. So just like at the end of that, like you know, they're digging people up, reburying them, and they're gonna be told they're told they're gonna be shot if they don't do this. 
Ugh. At that point, like that's when the ceasefire declaration gets handed down. Um, so, you know, then McVeigh goes. He his job, like one of his his unit his unit's jobs, is to secure the ceasefire negotiations. Like, so he ends up actually shaking hands with Schwarzkopf, but like that in itself is kind of there's like this comedy of errors involved that's that's all in the foot or the end notes um yeah like it's crazy he was like present for like <laughs> almost every notable event in the first Gulf War right yeah yo well, yeah because he was in the lead yep yeah yeah so he he he's not just like you know like oh i didn't see any action like he saw the most action yeah, it's wild. Um, after after that, like after the war, and up and you know, they're still uncovering bodies from that. They're still dealing with like the carnage of that theater of war, um, and, and that was even up until like the next round of Gulf War. They they were still dealing yeah. with it. Now there are like conflicting stories about how McVeigh responded right because and they sort of like run the gamut for like who exactly like what was the relation to McVeigh so like some people you know didn't really observe much difference others saw like he was super fucked up about it and like there's like a whole range right yeah I mean his his family and his friends like they knew he was he was fucked up about it. McVeigh himself yeah. says, like, publicly, or like when he knows what he's saying is public, he says it didn't affect it didn't affect me other than politically, other than like I knew the U.S. government is a bunch of liars. But like, as far as psychologically, uh, McVeigh doesn't want anyone to think anything ever affected him ever. You know, so there's that. But yeah, um, you know, some people have said even Lone Wolf accounts will say part of his problem was like the the war that he was affected by the war but they don't say why like they don't like like and then there was a bulldozer assault they just say like it disturbed him a lot of people pass off mm. the, the that gulf war because they're like oh it was only you know a couple days and you know there not not much happened and so like a lot of times it's dismissed uh, the effect, but but yeah, there's people that will say, well, he was affected by the war, and that made him uh, more likely to do a bombing at home. And then there there would be people, including McVeigh, that would say it didn't have any effect. I... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I don't think that it's at all as simple as like oh, you know, combat veterans are loose cannons, right? But, like, on the flip side, a lot of really horrific violence that, you know, ends up blowing back on a bunch of different societies comes from, like, basically combat veterans, whether you want to, like, look at the Fry Corps, you know, before World War II, you know, various Vietnam vets going postal. I'm not passing judgment, obviously, but it's like, you know, even just like 
bank, you know, like anytime the cops have to like get in a shootout, anytime cops actually get killed, it's usually a combat vet who does it, you know, like it's just very interesting. And there's physical conditioning involved in in this, but like mm -hmm. that doesn't still mean that everybody is going to do that. It's, you know, there's I'm sure a set of exactly situations but like if you're physically conditioned to kill if you're under threat it might you know that might affect you in day-to-day -day life yeah right um however it's gonna affect the iraqis you know a little bit i i don't know i don't i'm not gonna yeah. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, I know what you're saying. <laughs> oh, I'm seeing. I'm just seeing here about the, the it, like, well, then there's the things like depleted uranium, chemical weapon, oil well fires, experimental. I don't know. There's both worse. I don't. Yeah, he was potentially exposed to chemical and biological weapons, which the United States was probably using yeah right? i mean yeah they um <laughs> that's in there um there were times as far as the oil well fires the iraqis i'm sure they probably did start a lot of them but then like some of them happened as a result of of fire of like united mm. states fire but what no matter how they happen what happens here like thick clouds of flammable, poisonous, neurotoxic, carcinogenic, sulfurous smoke, fumes, gases. They rise up to over 12,000 feet in every direction, covering at least half of Kuwait. The, here you go. The sun is blacked out. Um, sand mm. dunes turn black. Black rain starts to fall in a radius of up to 800 miles. Suit from these fires would cover uniforms, hair, food, like this is a nightmare like scenario. Um, McVeigh himself says he 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 counted at least fifty oil well fires, um, and and his other his cohorts they talk about like as we're making this trek through the desert, you know the sun is like you said blacked out. There's the Allies <laughs> used depleted uranium on tanks. Um, McVeigh's division in reports it doesn't say mcveigh but it names his division are were among the thousands exposed to the depleted uranium uh one hour of exposure to depleted uranium is uh, the equivalent of 50 chest x-rays good thing you didn't get 50 chest x-rays in the army before that point in the military <laughs> yeah yeah or did he um <laughs> they they leave all this shit behind yeah when they when the united states and the allies exit this theater they just leave all that for the iraqis uh chemical weapons here we go <sighs> i'm i'm just laughing because it's crazy um mm -hmm. the u.s military uh officials advised that there is going to be a strong possibility that Iraqis would deploy chemical weapons. Um, and then later said, oh, no one did, but somebody did. Because like in 1993, uh, the, there was a Pentagon study overseen by 
Deputy Defense Secretary and current CIA Director John Deutsch, Deutsch, I don't know how how to say it, John (laughs) Deutsch, Um, this inquiry led by him um, looked at the possibility that soldiers were exposed to chemical weapons. They are, they, that study says, like, and they decide they weren't, um, but that decision is a little bit suspect because the head of the study is a scientist who is also on the board of directors for a nonprofit company that made over 70 government approved shipments of anthrax and other deadly pathogens to Iraq between 1985 and 1989. So even if United States didn't wage uh, chemical warfare, like they were the ones that supplied the chemicals. Um, The House Oversight Committee in 96 revealed that for several days, U.S. soldiers, in an attempt to destroy them, blew up munitions held in storage bunkers uh, that contained the nerve agent sarin, uh, mustard gas, and other agents, and released this like huge cloud of, of that shit into the air. So... There's a lot of missing records, like a lot of the inquiries that would go on about the chemical uh, warfare on both sides. In Iraq, a a lot of the (laughs) records would go suddenly missing. Um, And then on top of that, you've got experimental drugs that were given to all Gulf War um, soldiers. And these were experimental these were experimental i don't know how else to say that uh and they were not given with consent sometimes they didn't know they were getting them sometimes they did but if they refused they uh would be penalized um it could even be called treasonous and then they were given different kinds of experimental drugs and so in combination nobody knows like what what the effects of that might be um and 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 while some of these are in McVeigh's records, not all of them are. And McVeigh himself would be like looking at his records saying, oh, they missed one. They missed one. Like, where there are those McVeigh until, you know, even probably up until the time of his death. But prior to trial, when I have like records of him talking, it says like we were used as guinea pigs. And, and, uh, and so what happens here is like, it's not just McVeigh that, ends up having like a lot of really serious health problems right after the Gulf War. I talked to and have have uh, statements by like a lot of his cohorts um, that got very sick. Um, and a lot of them had their records purged or denied access to their own records. And this, this isn't a problem with just them though. This is a much yeah. larger problem and it's written about really extensively in the book yeah no like i mean yeah like getting sketchy weird vaccines like everyone did getting exposed to all kinds of weird shit from potentially both sides like yeah like all of that seemed to have happened to a lot of the soldiers in the first gulf war and then like we hear you know in the u.s we might hear something about oh, some of these soldiers are suffering from psychosomatic illnesses. And it's like, it's like, okay, they were probably covering some 
various things up, weird guinea pig programs and so forth. And they didn't want, you know, and they had financial incentive and other incentive to, to cover, to cover that up. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say, like, there, there's this multi-toxic exposures, um, but it's it's not just American soldiers. Like the rate of Iraqi cancer birth defects, infant mortality, the same, you know, they also suffered um, after effects physically, including very high cancer rates of from the exposures. But the the vaccines and the inoculations, um, yeah, right. This isn't just like a couple. And, and, And in the book, it talks about like the progression of like denial of what's called Gulf War illness to you know, many years later, some admissions and paying out some soldiers. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, there was not one cohort that I talked to that, 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 that didn't say that was an issue, like, which makes me think, like, how uh, how much more than... Yeah, and, like, so when we talk about an avalanche of decay, mm-hmm. like it's not clear whether McVeigh was actually having real health problems before before the Gulf War, but he pretty clearly was physically deteriorating after the Gulf War. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, because right. we don't know what really was happening in those first like prior to the Gulf War, there's still an inordinate amount of like health problems on these records. And it's, but nobody mm-hmm. seems to be like, no one's like, oh, he was sick as fuck. But like, yeah. definitely afterwards, it people noticed it. Like when he goes home, people are like, you need to go to the doctor, dude. You know, and that keeps happening. Yeah. He, um, he's, it, he's unable to like retain food, um, has strange like random, nosebleed starts getting real weird skin conditions um this continued this is this goes on up until his execution also by the way because the medical odyssey that is going on even while he's awaiting trial this but it's like a whole subplot yeah it's crazy um and why isn't you know look if you're gonna write the definitive I, I would never call my book definitive, but if you're going to claim on the front cover of your book, like, this is the definitive account of Tim McVeigh, like, <laughs> you might want to look at something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, like, if we're thinking about the experiences of the first Gulf War, it goes without saying, but, I, you know, I should say it anyway. If you had to pick, right, I'm just saying, like, in general, not to you. Like, most of your sympathy should probably be to Iraqi civilians and the military. But it sure as hell seems like the actual U.S. soldiers involved, many of whom were carrying out horrific crimes, were themselves victimized by the U.S. government. Yeah, yeah, yep. I mean, they're they're, they're being experimented on. Mm. Um, medically and on top of the fact that they're already just like (laughs) 
in horrible positions and, you know, stuck in Bradleys that don't work and forced to kill people who they shouldn't be killing and on and on. Like, and I'm sure, you know, some of them are not, you know, these aren't, these are kids mostly, you know, they're doing military life. Well, mm. you know, I don't know what to do in my life. I, I, I want money for college or what, what not. Like now, now this, like they weren't, they didn't go in and tend. I'm not saying some didn't, but I would, you mm. know, I'm sure, you know, there's just some hapless kids. Like now they're getting shots of like, now they're getting experimental drugs now they're being told you have to run over human bodies with your vehicle yeah just start to finish it's like not a lot of heroes in this story no. <laughs> like you said no the only hero like if i i, I don't love the word hero you just i, I don't know mm -hmm. that's a whole like thing in my head like this discussion i have but but the only hero I can see is probably Jesse Trinidu. Like, that's the only person really that might come out of this, like. <laughs> yeah, maybe like, what's his name? Uh, Terrence Yakey. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. And I don't, I had prior, like, geez, before I even knew I was writing a book, I had written about Yakey. And then, like, I had been involved in the documentary. We had, like, uh, we had spent a lot of time with his family, and and that is in the documentary. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't go too much into Yankee, but he comes out a hero. Yeah, sure, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, so and that's a fucked up story too. But yeah, shout out to the Jinx video. Oh yeah, um, yeah, and that's heartbreaking. Like, and so then to me, like to. to any 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 of you know, the people victimized by this to like sit across like mm -hmm. that really changed me right from the get-go like right when I first started the second I decided like okay I've read everything I can I, I I need to see these places for myself by the way I've never been able to get to Iraq but I would love to see those sites too but uh but you know just even going out to Oklahoma City and you're sitting down and you're talking to people whose family members have been murdered and they are looking at you and saying like please help us get to the bottom of this please like you don't mm. I, I, I that changed me that is like something you don't you can't just be like okay yeah because I was gonna ask like and I know that it would be a hard question but maybe that's part of the answer like what on earth drove you to write, you know, such a long and exhaustive book on something like this? I didn't know what the book was going to, you know, I, I, I knew that I had a lot of information was, and, and that the more information I got, the more I was driven to keep getting more information. Like it just, mm -hmm. I got, I don't, don't want to say sucked in because I voluntarily did this, but it sucked me in and I allowed myself to get sucked in. But, uh, you know, they're like, that's a defining when I started it. That was a defining mm. moment. Like, oh, I can't just, I never met, I was never in a position that you have people begging you to help them solve the deaths of their loved ones. Like, that was new to me and it, 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 it affected me. Um, and then, like, for the more information I had, it, I just was compelled by it like it was too big it was too much and I had to make sense of it yeah. myself and just in order for me to try to 
make sense of it. I had to do that. I didn't mean to write the big book, like a, a book this big. Like, and I think in the beginning of it, I say like it started out as a ten-page term paper, and I, and it just kept. It was like every string I pulled, it would be like an avalanche of mm. of information that I was felt compelled to to. And by the way, the book was bigger in its first, like in some of the earlier, <laughs> but I was told like at one point they wanted to take out all of my citations and endnotes and put them online. And like, I was having, not having that, that, no. I hate when books do that. No way. Yeah. Because look, yeah, no, just no. Um, but the book, I did voluntarily take out chunks that will be in the second book. Um, mm. um, but you know, at some point, the publisher had concerns about the number of pages they'd had to print. So, um, but I didn't start out to write the book. The book is as long as it had, as it needed to be. Uh, and with that mm. said, as I had, I had to reread it to do this show because look, it's, it's been a few years and I, I've been working <laughs> on other stuff. And as I'm reading, I'm like, okay, I could have maybe like did that a little more succinctly but you know for the most part it's as long as it had to be yeah much like this interview i am so oh my god we're not <laughs> no no it's not to apologize it's i'm having a blast
so I think we were going to talk now about these special forces tryouts. Oh yeah. Um well so so remember if you remember Mc, McVeigh right before he's deployed to the Gulf was supposed to go to the special forces tryout. Um it's technically called special forces selection and assessment course, but I just call it the tryout. because uh, easier to say but uh and that's mm-hmm. he he's supposed to go but then he gets deployed um and so to, at the end of like after the ceasefire has already been you know the, the negotiations the, the war is effectively done at least for uh, militaries and um they're just kind of putzing around in this one town and he gets told you've got um You've got thirty minutes to back your stuff and 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 gear and report to Fort Bragg for this for this uh, tryout and and so that so there he goes he's finally getting the chance to like do this thing he had always wanted to do but um and and he does go there but it's very pivotal just kind of like him entering the army sets off. Other trajectories of narrative. This one, at least when people are talking about the bombing itself, and you know, this one sets off trajectories. It's pivotal. Yeah, because like on the one hand, ironically enough, actually going to war is not good preparation for the tryout because. You want to typically go into it what like uh with more mass in general because it's so draining that like frequently you might wash out just due to like the stress of it, right? And like he had already been through a stressful situation. So like he's kind of set up to fail almost in some ways, right? Yeah, he doesn't yeah, he doesn't have you know, he's got a couple days because they they tell him you have to go immediately, but there's a couple days like before he ends up arriving there. But uh, uh, he has no time really to re- to recover from like what was is probably <laughs> sleep deprivation, like for weeks and weeks and weeks, like in- insane. Mm-hmm. Or physically, you know, like he hadn't been before that. Everyone talked about how he. You know, he was always he would do extra physical training like he was always preparing his body for what is extremely rigorous um, scenario. But right in the Gulf, he's like sitting in a in, in a vehicle. He's not um, training himself. And right, as you say, body mass, like most people. <sighs> I have it somewhere here, like. You know, everyone loses like I think it's like up to twenty pounds, and when you're already like thin, like he was, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have twenty pounds to lose. But right, so the the so kind of let me see what does this entail? What I have it in my notes, and I'm I mean, for one thing, yeah. it's like you know, it's it's like marches, but these aren't here we are, not regular marches. Like it's eight weeks. It's designed intentionally to overtax the body and the mind um and some of the physical challenges besides like obstacle courses it's 50 meter swims wearing full 
battle dress uniforms, marches of more than 150 miles while carrying um, rifles and up to 50 pound you know, backpacks. Could not imagine that. That's wild. Regular sleep and food deprivation for up to five days at a time. Um, and, and if you're starting with no fuel, like, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, the rate of attrition is like really high. Over half of those who attempt this course don't complete it. Um, and those attending are selected based on, among other things, your physical condition at the conclusion of the course. Um, and usually people like the most most people are in a state of starvation at the end exhaustion people are like nearly mad like not like angry mad but like insane Mm -hmm. because of this um some people at the end of this course have like repeated hallucinations most have shed over 20 pounds um and then there's also psych tests but we'll get into that in in a minute (laughs) I was going to also shout out Fort Bragg, North Carolina, oh, yeah. because as we record, I am looking at the Hexen 2039 poster <laughs> by Suzanne Treister, Ooh. where Fort Bragg appears because the, among all the other things at Fort Bragg, there's also the PSYOPs unit. Yes. Yeah. So there's that. Um, you know what? I'm not sure if I had, there's so much in that poster. I don't yeah Mm. that's that's funny that you just saw that um (laughs) and you are as i've told you you're the only person i know in my life you know and i'm pretty sequestered here but like that even knows what the hexen deck is or who she is suzanne treister or has that poster (laughs) i'm trying to like get even my followers to be into suzanne treister but like i don't even I feel like it doesn't take. I don't know if it's just for real heads out there. <laughs> I have had the the exact same experience. Uh, you know, like like you gotta see this. Even people like right thematically that I know would be like, oh, that's wild. Mm-hmm. Like it just it's like blank. There's I'm like, but look, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it's so exhaustive and it's. Anyways, that I love that. I love her work. Oh yeah. Um. And of course, Fort Bragg is on there. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so those are the rigors of the the special forces. Like, try it. That's what you can expect. Um, and let me go back. Um, so there's a few stories here. All right, the most commonly told and widely accepted. And like, so people tell me this, like sometimes people I like don't understand how much I was immersed <laughs> in this or what, or, you know, obviously they didn't read my book. They're just like, oh, you wrote a book about Tim McVeigh. Oh yeah. He was mad because special forces. Like people <laughs> say this to my face, but, um, and that's okay. But, uh, it, at that point, right. I just, I, I have nothing to say because we, we, we already went mm. over this, but right. So the most widely known and accepted version um, even with people with the best of intentions, tell it this way. And I'm going to add, in the end, this is the version he gives his um, biographers. 
so he leaves he he and actually another person in his cohort that he's with a friend of his by the name of Whitmire they they go together he's also pulled out um and in 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 this first version they realize really quickly into the course that they they couldn't hack it and McVeigh says he got a blister on his foot and uh and it hurt him so bad he decided to withdraw from the course um Later, he would say to some other people that, like, he was given the option to come back. Um, and I'm going to say this. On the flight home, he wrote a letter, or at least, you know, we think it's on the flight home. But he says, like, he's on his way, but he's not in shape. He says, quote, my list of headaches to come is a mile long. Um, and whether he's referring to the special forces course or something else entirely i don't know but that's what he says um initially when the fbi questions the special forces uh, assessment school commander about it he says like he couldn't recall mcveigh and then so he looks at his records he's viewing the army's own records that the fbi gives him He's like, first, he's like, I don't recall. But then the FBI is like, well, look at this. And then he's like, oh, yeah, actually, I um, supervised McVeigh as he withdrew. Um, so McVeigh signs the entrance form. As soon as you get in, you get processed and there's an entrance form. And that's dated April 3rd. And the withdrawal statement that I have like, is, is dated April 7th. And first of all, that that isn't two days in, but we'll get to that. Um, and on the withdrawal statement, it does say McVeigh wasn't physically ready. Um, and he says he's maybe having a change of heart. Um, again, like, and, and this guy says, I gave him the option, like, you can come back in six months, like, go home, get some rest, you can come back. Um, and let's just say that that's exactly what happened it doesn't explain what the the the, the weird number like why he, it's signed days later and not like two days later but um the cohorts like when he goes when he goes back um, to fort riley he's angry and he's upset and like after this he just everyone sees him falling apart and so people will say well, that was the turning point. And at that point, the bombing is a foregone conclusion because he's just so butthurt about not being in the special forces. So mm -hmm. that's the first story. And if you're just looking at the things I just mentioned, okay, that's plausible because there is a high attrition rate. But mm -hmm. then there's a second story. And this is that on the first day of special forces, and this is this is documented, recruits get a battery of psychological evaluations. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with some of these tests, um, but I'm going to tell you, like some of them are designed by MK doctors specifically. Mm -hmm. um, we've got the sex sentence completion test and Minnesota multifacet personality inventory um and these yeah. these tests are an ordeal 
they're not just tests, they're an ordeal. And they're specifically structured to put the maximum amount of psychological pressure on the person being tested. And in order to quote unquote pass, so I'm going to say pass, but ultimately they're also um, profiling mechanisms. But in order to pass the test, you, you need to demonstrate adaptability, cooperation, dependability, stamina, ingenuity, tact under constant physical and mental stress. Um, and so they also use these tests, even if you pass, they'll still use the tests, and even if you don't, to construct very uh, nuanced predictive psychological profiles that then determine what's to be done with this person. And Yeah, I had just a little bit on the Minnesota multiphasic oh. personality inventory test. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> the test has questions such as you have to respond to something like my soul sometimes leaves my body oh or once in a while i think of things too bad to talk about oh my oh my goodness <laughs> so really spooky shit it goes without saying that they are among other things looking for personality types with a propensity to violent acts right um, oh yeah because it's for soldiers obviously they yeah. are like one of the things that the test um kind of will will pick up or, or supposedly pick up or hone in on are those of a high risk yeah or violent those yeah exactly with the propensity of losing <laughs> their shit so it's funny because like parts of the timothy mcveigh story remind me a little bit of like the movie in the parallax view you know where it's like idyllic and then like there's like scenes of violence and like all of that so like just reading through all of timothy mcveigh's life feels like you're watching that little movie within the movie oh yeah yeah so the psychological test testing mm -hmm. um these kinds of tests like where they started to be administered during world war one not those specific ones but there you were there um again as psychological profiling but it's during world war ii the oss specifically like <laughs> starts to design tests um they establish a school of psychologists and psychiatrists meant to give soldiers psychological tests and a bad recruit was, among other things, quote, stupid, apathetic, sullen, resentful, arrogant, and insulting, uh, blab, sloths, irritants, free talkers. Um, but those whom the intelligence communities thought displayed um, good qualities um, are designed, they, they are trying to individ identify individuals attitudes towards family sex interpersonal relationships how they viewed themselves um response to, to threats uh their levels of contact with reality so those questions that you just told me like that's interesting contact with mm -hmm. reality however defined um and so they also want to determine and um, gauge levels of hypochondria, depression, hysteria, psychosis, paranoia, obsessiveness, mania, introversion. Um, 
And it's not like, like you said in the beginning, they're not looking for the smartest here. They're, they're looking for something else. It's, it's, it's not an intelligence test. Yeah. Like the normal special forces are basically throat cutters, right? Oh yeah. It's a certain type of person who is fine with shooting someone in the middle of the night in their bed. Right. Right. These aren't conventional soldiers that are meeting other soldiers on a battlefield. Right. Yeah. It's a little different than that. But yeah. So it's like they are gearing the tests to like, are you going to have a problem with killing someone because we tell you to? And are you going to be able to keep your mouth shut? Yeah. And like, I don't know, is McVeigh actually the type of person who would be a good special forces? Like, maybe not. He might be too sensitive or something. Right. And and as we saw, like, even earlier on, if you would have given him a test as a teenager, he might have displayed what would be called paranoia, like, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, so. So that's actually I have like something to add that like came after the book was already published on this. But like, uh, I'll just Mm -hmm. so the bombing happens April 19th by May. News outlets are using, they're citing unnamed military officials who report that McVeigh failed the psych evaluation portion of the Special Forces tryout. And then, um, and even like a Buffalo journalist writes, he spoke to, a, and this is always a confidential source, who said that the answers he gave on the psych test was off center or were off center. Um, he didn't fit the psych profile and i'm going to add a caveat to that the psych profile Mm. for conventional special forces he fit some he may have fit some kind of profile but maybe it wasn't you know a green beret just maybe the patsy profile yeah and i would love to you know i'll never be in a position i would love to see that like guidebook like (laughs) Mm -hmm. and here's who your patsy A number of soldiers that knew him gave statements to the press and to Jones and to uh, his defense team that that said McVeigh uh, washed out on the paperwork, basically, that he failed the psych test. Um, Say Mm. McVeigh himself was extremely um, agitated by such allegations. So his attorney tells reporters, and this is based on the records his attorneys had at that moment, that McVeigh couldn't have failed the psych test because he left after two days. The FBI records that the Jones team later got, as I said, he didn't leave on April 5th, two days later. He's there until April 7th. Hmm. so we've got that so he was he was there long enough to have taken the psych test so at one point and this is a little later um the records that they do have they they were eventually able to get some kind of write-up about it but not the um test itself that he took and a, a record specialist and they note this in a report his defense team notes this in a report he says the results of the let's just the site tests for special forces are of particular note 
And then uh, another um, psychiatrist on the defense team says, like when he sees at least the brief write up, he says, the results are consistent with what we know about Tim now. Um, so, so there's something, let's say, just not normal or like there's something interesting in that. But what it is, I guess I don't have. Um, but however, I would have recently was um, in contact with a member of, of Terry Nichols defense team. I'm just going to say this. After the book came out, I was contacted by numerous people, some of whom had, were involved either in Nichols' defense, McVeigh's defense, or mm. involved in this case. And um, but but he that team, like Nichols' defense team, did have more information that led them to believe he had um, quote unquote failed the psych test. Um, Hmm. so so i just want to say that there's more weird stuff going on like i'm not saying that's the end story and that that's the last little bit like but something happened in the psych test but something more actually also happened in that special forces evaluation um McVeigh, when he gets back to Fort Riley, like he gives different answers to different people. He tells one person the, the course had been canceled. Um, he tells people at home that he realized, and this is ridiculous, he realizes that special forces are more like college book oriented than field oriented. Um, and, and he wasn't into that. So I don't know about that. This is the point, though, like from here on out, where everything McVeigh says, he's going to tell, he's never going to give one story and only one story. He's always forevermore yeah. going to give conflicting stories. And this, it begins here about about the Special Forces tryout. So now, here we, here, here's the good one. Now we get to the fourth story, and this goes back to that guilty agent um narrative type so to some mcveigh ends up painting like a, a very different portrait of what happened at that tryout and what he says and he tells us at one point to his sister but he tells us to like a, a bunch of people but the one that's like actually in writing is the letter to his sister he says the 400 new recruits had all taken a number of intelligence, psychological, adaptness, and a whole other battery of tests. And he says at some point during those special forces tryout, he does not say on day one when I had a blister. He says at some point in, in the days he's there, him and some other E5 sergeants, which he was, that had secret clearances, which he had, um, including himself, were get got called out of formation, and they were separated from the others, and they were kind of like talked up, and um, and they were told they had been handpicked because of the results of their tests, and they're given what he calls an intelligence briefing, and they're asked to quote unquote volunteer for special covert assignments, and. He says they would be acting 
he's told they would be acting as military consultants to domestic and international civilian police and intelligence agencies. Um, and while um, he, they were not told the exact nature or extent of the assignments, they accepted, they all accepted it. I, I'm not sure really if you, you wouldn't, like if you're already there, I don't know, you're, you're told like you've been selected as an elite, you know, they're like, all right. So they accept this. Um, it's like the A-team. Exactly like the A-team. As I was <laughs> writing this and processing this, I like watch every episode of the A-team because I, I don't know, I just did. But uh, it is like the A-team. And a lot of stories like end up sounding sometimes like the A-team in this larger story. But um, he was like, although they weren't told specifics, like you're going to go here and do this, they they were told it could involve a number of like unpleasant tasks. He says, including drug smuggling and assassination. Nice. Yeah. So that's that. Like that's a, I can remember being in that archive and you're not like, you know, you're not allowed to like yell, oh my God, or, you know, you, you have to be quiet at the <laughs> library, but like, pulling this letter and be like oh my like i i had to leave and smoke a cigarette um <laughs> yeah that's what's so crazy like yeah 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 like you found this buried somewhere basically like this wasn't like i mean yeah he would tell other people but like you know it speaks to the fact that like it's not like this was like this popular narrative necessarily like you uncovered that letter where he's saying that it's wild. Yeah. And there were stories like th there were always like, oh, he was probably um, a guilty agent. Like they didn't call it a guilty agent, but there were things like that, mm -hmm. but not like what absolutely was never known. I, I, as far as I know, is like how many times and how many people he told this to, including, well, and we're going to get to that, his first, his first round of attorneys. He, so so he tells this he tells this to his mother he tells it to his sister he tells it to his first attorneys he tells it eventually to, to, to terry nichols he tells it he tells this story and he tells it uh, you know for years uh, he tells it after his arrest sometimes but in subsequent letters to his sister he says like at first he agreed and he was told like okay you're gonna go back you're going to go back to Fort Riley. You're going to, you're going to kind of like just not reenlist. You're going to go home and you're going to wait for orders. And then like, he says that the more he learned as he learned what he was supposed to be doing when he was getting these orders, the more distraught he came. And eventually he actually becomes mm. suicidal and has like this whole mental breakdown. Um, now, now there's two more sub trajectories where either, mcveigh tries to elude this mission or mcveigh sticks to the mission like that's mm -hmm. you know we're, we're jumping ahead in time but what's consistent about the stories is like he says like he was recruited into something during the special forces and, and uh and i even say in the book like it's like the a-team um you know the crack commando mm -hmm. unit framed for bank robberies you have to escape and live <laughs> underground and so McVeigh is reading, or not McVeigh, McVeigh, his his attorneys, and I mean a whole team, are, are reading these letters. And one one they make a note in a memo. It says, 
like they're kind of unable to make heads or tails of it because it's such a strange thing. And they didn't yet know what I don't think they knew yet what the first attorneys had he had said to them. But they said it wasn't written disingenuously. Like they knew McVeigh enough by now, had spent enough time with him that they, you know, they knew when he was being bullshitting. They said it doesn't it's, it doesn't sound he's not writing it in a disingenuous way. One of them writes, if Tim's a liar, he's one good liar. Um, so there was enough that like they had a wonder. Now, their role isn't to get to the bottom of like McVeigh's role in covert operations. It's to legally defend him. So they can't spend too yeah. much time on it. Um, whatever happened, his family at least believed that it, that it, it changed him for forever. Like it was real. Um so like the psych test story there's there's other conflicting and parallel readings of, of what happened here at the special forces and and i think the more we go through the next the, like the the more we go on the the more mm-hmm. this doesn't sound as crazy because you could say well like yeah. okay he was just making up a story because he was embarrassed you know because he didn't perform like he should have but then in context there's it, it, it becomes it, it gives it more weight it makes it seem like okay well something's going on here the things he's doing and the people he's interacting with sure seems exactly like the thing he described yeah yeah at some point his sister like expresses great frustration with the fbi and, and there's a lot of reasons for that but in this particular instance like it's because they kept denying that her brother had had been um, inducted into the special forces. And then she says something that's fortuitous. She adds, she gave the FBI his records that proved he was. McVeigh before, and then the FBI, by the way, loses, destroys or loses them. Like they never appear again. Um, but like McVeigh knew shortly before the bombing occurred enough to give his records to his sister and say hang on to these because you're gonna need them mm-hmm. and uh you know nobody except i guess the fbi knows what happened to all my listeners out there who are deep undercover <laughs> Make sure you make multiple copies and make sure that your loved ones give the records, not just to the FBI, but also to the media. <laughs> just a program to chill uh, tip of the day. No, yeah, because, I mean, I, I'm sure maybe thought, like, okay, I've given my... And, and maybe himself, um, there was, like, three attempts for before the bombing for him he's like getting his records he keeps trying to get his records he knows that they're if (laughs) they're gonna deny everything that like no matter what the nature of this mission or like this thing he was inducted to like he knew that it was going to be denied and uh he had some kind of paperwork including like i think flight records to show it and Unfortunately, she gave those, you know, those got into the hands of of the FBI, never to be seen again. And and this isn't just a claim 
that she says later, because she, she never talked to the media or anything. <laughs> After the bombing, the FBI, they, they like bugged um, the home, their homes. And she thinks she's having a private mm. conversation with her mom. And I think someone else. And she's saying like, I gave them the records. Like Tim gave me these to, sh to show, you know, Tim gave me these for safekeeping and they, they prove it. And like, they're gone now like so that's a candid conversation she does not know i don't know that she ever knew that that that, that room was being bugged um but i found those mm -hmm. transcripts as well like right that's just remarkable <laughs> like i remember boltzmann told me that back in our episode and i was just like holy crap um that the that fourth story there the one like he's inducted into this so and I said that that branches off in two directions. And like at one point, he he tells at least his sister. He's like, "Well, I'm trying to elude the mission. Like they're 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 after me because I I um, blew off my orders to 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 um, participate in this covert domestic operation." Now that also branches off in another way, and and so. When McVeigh is first arrested, he is appointed to two attorneys um, and they're meeting with him. And what he says, and I'm going to, this is a quote. And I'm sorry, I have to keep like reading from paper, but I, all this stuff just isn't, it, it, I don't, I can't call it up as, as like I used to. I used to be able to probably recite that whole book in my sleep, but <laughs> he says, this is what the attorneys say. He had been operating within the confines of the United States government when he did what he did, having been recruited by the government while serving four to five month period in the National Guard. And his, and we're going to get to that part, but his duties to were to search for neo-Nazis and other problem troops. Um, now I'm not quoting but the operation had gone well, and, and this is what he's telling his first attorneys. And these are the first people to talk to him besides, you know, unless someone weird was sent in. But like... Yeah, other than law enforcement, yeah. Right, right. He He's being like, this is the very first story he tells. And he says the operation went well, and eventually these handlers instructed him. He, he comes across a bomb plot, okay? He... He networks enough and he like finds himself like uh, hobnobbing with people that have a bomb plot. And he tells his handlers, he passes the information on and he specifically tells them it's going to be the Murrah federal building. And, and what he's told is, well, keep stick with it, stay in it, but just make sure that the bomb is like weak enough to only possibly blow out a few windows and I'm going to add that, like, later he would tell people, like, it was supposed to be, it was supposed, first of all, he says the truck was switched. Anyways, he's told by his, his, and it was supposed to be at night, but he's told by his handlers to stick with the plot, but do whatever you have to do to make sure, like, this bomb isn't going to do what it did. Um, and now, and he tells his first attorneys, he suspected someone had switched the truck or the explosives without his knowledge. Um, immediately after 
these attorneys recuse themselves recuse themselves from the case and they cite conflict of interest and and that and they were from Oklahoma City so there could very well have been conflict of interest but they are like oh no we don't want anything to do with this <laughs> and and that's what you know they kind of express that to Jones because when so, so Stephen Jones a guy named Stephen Jones is appointed as his like actual attorney after they like cut and run and what they're handing over the case files you know and they say to him when you know everything we know like you're never gonna think the same way about the government again that's what the first attorneys told jokes um McVay is mm-hmm. later confronted with this and he gets extremely upset and it starts like swearing loudly and stuff um because he didn't think that the attorneys are but I guess he thought that was confidential or something. And so <laughs> he gets upset that they did this because by this time, his story has is conforming and will continue publicly to conform to whatever the FBI decides is the story um, down to the littlest details. It'd be like, like if he said, oh, actually it was um, a U-Haul truck. And then the FBI says it was a rider. He would be like, oh, it was a rider. Like, I mean, that's, <laughs> that didn't happen but that's for example that's how yeah. it could have happened um even on death row he's telling a story <laughs> to a guy named david paul hammer um who we can we can talk about later because he's funny um he's not funny but it's a funny story but uh anyways he tells this according to his friend on death row he says the same thing like that he had been recruited in the special forces and while there he he meets a guy called the major um and he had somehow he had met the major during the gulf war but the major is the one who pulls him out uh, of formation and inducts him into this thing and uh told him he was going to be working for the department of defense on a need to know black op Um, whose agenda was primarily domestic intelligence gathering and internal threat evaluation with an emphasis on direct counter action operations. The major then, he never has a name. He's just, McVeigh always just called him apparently the major. Um, And so the targeted group is going to be right-wing militancy. He offers McVeigh a position in a secret unit. Um, and he says, you'll be working alone. Okay. Like you're, you're not a free agent, but like, you're going to be on your own. You are allowed to recruit other people if you need it. Um, but keep your mouth shut, you know, just, you can, you can, uh, I guess involve other people, but you know, you are working for me and don't tell anybody. So the major tells him to wash out of special forces and to go home, right? Like I already said. Oh, I was just going to say, there are parts of Aberration which also feel like the movie The Departed. Yeah, I need to watch that one again, too. Can you refresh? I, I've seen it, but it's been years. Yeah, the TLDR, and for those who haven't seen The Departed, excellent movie by Martin Scorsese, where uh, basically it's like two different moles. So it's like, like a 
mole from like the Irish mob infiltrates the state police and then the state police infiltrate essentially the Irish mob. Right, right, right. And then they sort of have like a cat and mouse type of thing. But Yeah, and a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. So what 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 Hammer, the death row buddy, says is like whether it was true or and this is important, I think maybe whether it was true or not, McVeigh believed this story and uh and at the end of his life was preoccupied by it and like he thought like through some ruse or another the major was not going to let him be executed because he had done his job the, to the best of his ability so you could there's a couple things you can make on that by itself like either a this guy's making up the story hammer like mcveigh never said that you're just trying to get attention or mcveigh did say it but McVeigh was just bullshitting. But the problem is, mm-hmm. like, I've had an attorney from the defense team tell me the exact same thing, and mm-hmm. and his family, like the, the the statements of his family, also support that that whether it was true or not, this is he he believed it was true. Very very interesting. It could be both. I mm-hmm. I just think it could even be both. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? Because I'll, I guess I'll jump in. Like Lee Harvey Oswald, for example, you know, I think for whatever else he was doing, he, you know, people who are agents in the field doing things do tend to have an overinflated and so, uh, naturally self centered focus for what they're doing. Oh, yeah. And they might, might like, lead people to think that what they're doing is more than it is or more important than it is and they're naturally duplicitous because it's literally their job so like could it be more could it have been a simpler mission and he got over his head could it be like you know maybe he was doing some patcon stuff but maybe not you know there's a whole realm of like you know play for like Mm -hmm. You know, was he way off the reservation? I shouldn't use that phrase. Um, was he way off of the mark? Like, was he way outside his orders? You know, we don't know because they're secret if they exist at all. Like, there's so much gray with this story. And because it ends not only in all of these deaths in Oklahoma City, but also like U.S. history as officially given, like it, it's never, <laughs> you know how are we supposed to know this like that if there's anything to keep back and hold and like keep secret like that would be the thing yeah like i know this is like way sort of you know from left field but i it just occurred to me like so you know the whole like gore vidal like short i guess you could call it a book yeah oh yeah perpetual war for perpetual peace yeah and he sort of like almost comes out of left field insisting that timothy mcveigh is like noble yeah and like i read that and i was just like what yeah it's weird because i you know it was i read that one is one of the first things i ever read about the oklahoma city bombing and it baffled me but like i don't know like (laughs) what if gore vidal was told you know like he actually did you know like i don't like where did he get that idea you know like oh 
I don't know. Yeah, I mean, because it's like a you know kind of a treaty on American hypocrisy and 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 all, and then but still, yeah, I don't know, and and I'm sure that there was like you know a lot of correspondence that that obviously he didn't report. On the other hand, Mm -hmm. I I I wonder like would I don't know that McVeigh besides his letters to his sister, I don't know that he would put something like that in writing by that point because he was already yeah. invested in this public story that he wanted, the, the lone wolf. Yeah, which that just raises even more questions than if McVeigh probably didn't write that to Vidal, why would Vidal think that? Like, I don't know. It's just, it's, yeah. And McVeigh could also, like, he had ways of getting messages of people without putting it in writing. So, mm. So there, you know, like at one point during his trial, he slips a, <laughs> he slips a, he has somebody on the defense team slip a piece of paper to um, a friend of the Nichols family. And this, and it says like, they are fucking with my head. They're sending in, he says that the, um, the people from Langley basically, or Quantico, he says, are the shrinks from Quantico are coming in. Like, so he, he had ways mm. to try to like pass information on yeah i mean i don't know if Gorvidal has archives or where they're archived i it would be interesting if if mcveigh's letters are in there though mm-hmm. just on this uh this whole recruited and in, into a covert mission scenario well, we'll talk about the Bourne scenario later, but like I said, like even an attorney on the defense team <laughs> told me this. And, and like, I remember like we're sitting outside because he was a smoker. He wanted to have a smoke break. We had been in his office and we go outside. And that's the point where he's like, look, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, you know, M- McVeigh um, entertained this notion that he had been working for somebody um even so like terry nichols is you know for for whatever it's worth like but this is after he can't be tried anymore but um in 2007 he says like that mcveigh told him that he had been recruited and he had been told to participate in the bombing in a a bombing and and that mcveigh was like really upset because McVeigh tells them like the target's been switched. So so yeah. So there's I'm just saying like there's it's not you can't just say like oh McVeigh said that because he was sad. Like there's just more to it. There's more to consider anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's possible like you said he he could have been duped into thinking he worked for the government in this top secret mission um but really like his function or his role in that was something other than what he actually understood or or like you said and i think i even go into this in the book because actually jolly west himself writes about like what it takes to work in covert missions Mm. that's that so those are the stories about special forces Mm-hmm. the special forces tryout
You have just finished listening to an episode of Program to Chill, where I interviewed Wendy Painting. If you're listening to this, please consider donating to Wendy's coffee. What is a coffee? It's like a GoFundMe, but spelled differently. For the cost of a cup of coffee, or more if you're so inclined, you can help Wendy continue her research so we can get that second book out sooner. You can find that link in the show notes. Please support independent researchers like Wendy. And if you're listening to this on the free side, you can subscribe to my Patreon to hear these Wendy Painting interview episodes sooner than the weekly release date, as well as a whole back catalog of interesting content to make your chores easier or to make your shitty job more tolerable. Guaranteed. Thank you. God bless. Yo, still, they came around looking for you the other day. Word, word, bust it. Informer, you know, say that I'm a stormy, I go blam. I like you, boom, boom, damn. Take the mind that says that I'm a stormy, stab somebody out of land. I like you, boom, boom, damn. Informer, you know, say that I'm a stormy, I go blam. I like you, boom, boom, damn. Take the mind that says that I'm a stormy, stab somebody out of land. I like you, boom, boom, damn. Please, I'm gonna come in, I did blow down my door. Bring it up, I'll shoot you my window. So they put me in the back of the car at the station. From that point, I'm a reach my destination. Where the destination is, and I'd ease the tension. Where I look down my pants, look up my bottom. So in farmer, you know, say that I'm a snowman, I go glam. I like it, boom, boom, damn. Take the man that says that I'm a snowman, stop somewhere down the lane. I like it, boom, boom, damn. In farmer, you know, say that I'm a snowman, I go glam. I like it, boom, boom, damn. Take the man that says that I'm a snowman, stop somewhere down the lane. Think them have more power. They pound the phone, miss a dead pound a while. If I want to use it once, and I'm a call me lover. Love who be calling on the one, tell me. I'm a lover in my heart, down to my belly. Yes, and I'm a stomach, I'll be cool and deadly. It's the one MC shine and the one that is slow. Together we all have a miss a tornado in farmer. You know, say that I'm a stomach, I'll go glam. I'll keep on going down. Take them on the city, then I'm a stomach, start somewhere down the land. I'll keep on going down in farmer. Then I'm a stomach, stop somewhere down the lane I'll 
turn informer. Informer, you know, say that I'm a stummy, I go glam. I need keep on burn down. Take that money, say that I'm a stummy, stop somewhere down in land. I need to be done down. Informer, you know, say that I'm a stummy, I go glam. I need keep on burn down. Take that money, say that I'm a stummy, stop somewhere down in land.